0: Well, we're starting this morning as we uh, look into God's Word, uh, and we're going to look at a number of different passages this morning. Uh, We've been doing a series on honoring, and uh, this day we're going to be talking about honoring our country, honoring our nation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I saw an awful lot of fireworks this week. Uh, We went to the uh, Mansfield display, we always sit out at Kroger and kind of look down the highway at uh, Big Link Link Dreams and that way after the fireworks show we can get away quickly. Uh, The very next night we sat uh, in, in a person's yard and there was a fireworks display that was almost as good as the one Mansfield did right behind the house across the street I mean, it was so close that you felt stuff kind of hitting you. And at the end, you're kind of brushing stuff off your shirt and off your head and everything else. I mean, close, right? And not only was there one across the street, another one struck up that was probably from here to that door. And I mean, it was just, I was just like, oh my gosh, this was incredible, you know? And then, and then of course you'd cough for another couple of hours after, no, we didn't. But, uh, because of all the smoke, I mean, there's just smoke everywhere and little pieces, but it was so, so incredible. And I was thinking about how, uh, how beautiful it is, how much we love to celebrate. And I don't know if it's so much about the celebration and I'm sure it is, or it's just people like blowing up stuff. You know, but uh, the people get both, right? You get both of those in that, in that time. And so, and I was thinking about the millions of dollars that are spent, billions of dollars that are spent in that industry every year and just the thousands that individuals would spend and, and, uh, and, and what cities would spend in the hundreds of thousands uh, uh, to do these displays and these shows and, and it's incredible, and it, it raised a question for me as I was wrestling this week, a question not that I hadn't ever thought about before, but one that I kind of looked at anew. And that is, what does God think about these celebrations? You know, it's just an interesting question. I just kind of threw it out there, and I was thinking about it, and I, I thought, does God care about nations? You know, that was another question that I that, that was kind of follow-up. And How much does God care about nations in general, because nations come and go all the time, right? We've seen over the history of the world, all these nations that used to exist and no longer exist. And and you think, what does God think about nations? What is his focus on that? I like doing biblical theologies where you take an idea, a topic, and different from a topical Uh, study. This is a biblical theology is where you take a topic, but then you search the scriptures to see everything, every passage that has to do with that particular issue. And then you let, you categorize them in areas. And then you try to figure out what is God's word saying about it. That's different from a topical uh, study where you come up with the idea and you kind of come up with an outline and then you hope to find verses to fit your outline. I think sometimes when we do that, We may do a disservice to scripture because we tend to uh, force the scriptures into our thinking. And what I wanted to do was look at these passages anew and and, and wrestle with them again. Asking that one question, what does God think about nations? Uh, Is God all that interested? If you say he's not interested, then it's almost like God is... Deistic and Deism held sway in the 1700s, about the time that our country was founded, and there were a number of our early church fathers that that were uh, were Deists. Uh, there were a lot of Christians in the group, but there were also these Deists, and and it's hard to know exactly who was who, uh, uh, you read some of their writings and some things they aren't consistent in it. But some of them seem to stand out. Uh, Thomas Paine, for instance, uh, was a guy that uh, wrote The Age of Reason. He called Christianity a fable. What does he mean by that and where he was headed with that? He was friends with James Monroe, uh, who was a close friend of his. Was he influenced by this deistic perspective? We don't know. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, one of the things about deism is, is it believes that God... Started the world that he created all things and then he just kind of like a clock he wound it up and and then just lets it run on its own and he's hands off and there's no more miracles and that's why Thomas Jefferson has the Jefferson Bible where he took and he cut out all the miracles that were in the in the Bible all the ones and so his Bible is quite a bit shorter than mine Uh, and and he doesn't have a resurrection at the end of Christ's life which you know kind of important. Uh, to our salvation and a very important, crucial in fact. And so you, you look at this idea of deism and they were thinking, well, miracles are impossible because it was the age of science was beginning to come about. And, and so they're thinking in terms of well, the miracles are impossible because they would violate the laws of nature. And so that was their wrestle. The, the trouble is, is in the weakness of deism is you're, you're admitting to one of the biggest miracles of all creation. And then you're denying every other miracle and saying one's possible the others are not and so it's self defeating it it defeats itself and but so here these guys are and they're they're struggling with this idea of deism. Well they they were part of the founding of our nation as well. And so there was still, uh, even though there was a Judeo-Christian influence, there was still this other influences and other influences. And so the question that some would raise, they'd say, well, we were founded on biblical principles, and so therefore if we just got back to our roots, then, we would, then our nation would be where it needs to be. And so we see that, that wrestling with those issues and almost looking back and saying that time was a better time than the time we're, we're in now. And yet, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7, in all his wisdom, says just a simple statement say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. It's easy for us to look at the past and say, those were better days, and and we need to just get back to those better days. And Solomon's saying, you're not living in those better days, that ship has sailed. And it's not wise to try to live in the past. We need to live in the present. And the present reality is is that Christianity has uh, uh, undergone a shift in our nation from being very important to our culture to being uh, uh, almost challenged by our culture. And so you begin to see some some changes in our culture. And so it, it means that we need to be willing to live in this cultural challenge, in this time of cultural challenge. So does God care about the nations? Because it seems like when you look at the New Testament that there's been a shift from nations to individuals. Because you think about the purpose of the church. What are we asking people to do? We're asking them to listen to the gospel, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave. And to put their faith in Jesus, right? Individually. And then to baptize them individually and then to disciple them individually. And so we're thinking, when we look at the New Testament, we think, individual, that is now shifted. And in the Old Testament, nations. We look at the prophets and you see just nation after nation that was judged by these prophets. And so there's that sense in our minds where we're thinking shift from nations to individual. The interesting thing is, is when we, ask, when we say that, the question we have to ask ourselves, is that a biblical lens that we're looking at? or an American lens that we're looking at, because we're such an individualistic society that we think of the individual, that we think of the importance of the individual, the rights of the individual. We think of the individual as, as uh, in fact, when we get married, we, we move off from our parents. In ancient times, they, they stuck around, and they built a room onto their parents' house. And so you look at that and think, Is there been a shift? Does God care about nations? Because also, when you think about nations, we think about the passage in Philippians where where, um, God says that our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. So there's a priority, the citizenship in heaven is better than now. And so we have to ask ourselves the question has there been a shift? Has there been a shift in citizenship? Has there been a shift in nations? Does God care about our celebrations? God's creating a whole new world order. He's creating his kingdom. And you think in terms of that, and you realize, what is this distinction? And does it still exist? Is it still important? In Revelation chapter 5, we see something interesting where it says that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We'll be worshiping God, worshiping Christ. Worthy art thou. And so we see that distinction that's maintained even in the book of Revelation. And so it causes us to go back and ask ourselves the question, does God care about nations? Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation 21, talking about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And it says that this new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven and there will no longer uh, need the sun or the moon for light. Why? Because the Lamb will be the light. And in fact, that's what you see in that passage in verse 24. It says, by its light, the Lamb, by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Still kings, still the glory of kings. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it, here's what's being going to be brought into this city. The glory and the honor of the nations. What is the glory and honor of the nations? Is it the lamb? I certainly think that that's going to be a part of it from the context But it seems like they will bring into it, into this this, uh, city, this new Jerusalem, the glory and honor that belong to the nations. And so there is, in a sense, an honor of nations, even here in Revelation 21, next to the last chapter in the New Testament, talking about nations, and it causes you to go back and say, wait a minute, maybe I need to revisit this thing. Because here in the New Testament, it's talking about nations still. Yet, that distinction between tribe and tongue and people and language. And so I came up with four ideas that were important, I think, in, as I looked at these, these different passages. And one is, God blesses the nations through one nation. He blesses the nations through one nation, the nation Israel. I'm going to look at a few passages. Some of them, they're going to make you uncomfortable because you have them on a plaque in your house. And you're going to say, oh man, I don't know if I can use that anymore. Uh, I'm not trying to ruin the plaques in your house. I'm just wanting you to uh, look at these passages in a clear light and in their context. Psalm 33 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And you think, wow, that's, that's a solid one. That's one that's talking about any nation that wants to make God the Lord, then, then they're going to be uh, blessed. But then you got to look at the second phrase of that verse of Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his inheritance or his heritage. Well, who is that? Who is he chosen? We know that Israel was the chosen people, was the chosen nation. So he's specifically talking about the nation of Israel, and he's saying, you guys are going to be blessed if God is the Lord. And so it's nation singular; It's God doing the choosing, not the nation doing the choosing that's in view in that verse. And so you look at that and you realize, well, that probably is talking about the nation of Israel. What about some other passages? Psalm one seventeen shortest psalm in the scriptures it says, "Praise the Lord, all nations." He goes, "See there, that one's one, and it certainly is." Why does he tell him, "Praise the Lord"? The, the second verse in this short two verse psalm tells us why. It says, "Praise the Lord, all nations; extol him, all peoples." Here is the second verse: "For great is his steadfast love toward us." God loves. The nations. God loves the nations of people. He loves the collective nations of people that uh that that exist. It says the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And we think about that, and we think about John 3.16 kind of comes to mind. For God so loved the world. We don't tend to think collectively. We tend to think individualistically, separatistically. We don't think in terms of the collective. We don't even do it with the church. When you think about it, that God created his church. He wants us to be collectively together. He wants us to go forward into the world together, and yet we tend to think so individualistically. It's me and my Bible, and I'm taking on the world, right? And we think about I'm fighting the world. Even when we sing these songs about our our lives, we're not thinking collectively we're thinking individually of our own pain, not of the collective pain that we all have because when you have pain, I share your pain, and when I have pain, you share mine. And it's amazing how we read through the scriptures and we tend to think in such an individualistic sense that we struggle with these others. First Chronicles 7.14, here's one of the most popular ones you'll hear in regard to nations. You usually hear it on the National Day of Prayer. It says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And you think, what's wrong with that verse? That surely seems like any nation can claim that, right? Any person can claim that. Anybody who's a believer in Jesus Christ, if my people. Well, then you look at the phrase and do a little word study uh, on the phrase, my people. My people. You know what you come up with? There's a little longer phrase with another word added that's it's very common in the Old Testament. My people Israel. So is this talking about anybody who's a believer or is it specifically talking about Israel? And I think it's talking specifically about Israel 37 times in 35 verses. You see this. And yet the whole reason for his people serving and following him was so that the nations would also follow their example that was the reason he chose Israel is so that the rest of the nations of the world would see a land without a king and see a land that had God as their king a theocracy and see a land that was incredibly blessed by God by following God and that the nations of the world would start turning toward the Lord and give up their gods and embrace the one true God You see this in uh, Jeremiah chapter 12 where he's talking about judgment on, on those who are around the nation of Israel. He says, thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. And then he goes on in verse 16. It says, it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. And so there's that phrase, my people, and if they'll learn the ways these other nations learn the ways of Israel. He says, but if any nation will not listen, and then he brings judgment upon them. And so you see, Israel was to set the pattern, but they failed. They dropped the ball. In Proverbs 4, 34, it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And you think, where does that righteousness come from? It comes from the word of God. It comes from from Israel was given. And in fact, we see in Romans chapter 3 that they were entrusted with the word of God. 3.2, Three two it says they were entrusted with the very oracles of God. What advantage did the Jew have? They were tr- tr- entrusted with God's word. And so because they were entrusted with God's word, one of the things that they passed down to us is his word, the word of God. They protected it, preserved it, tra- uh, transcribed it so that we would have it. And that's why in Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation. It's God's righteousness, not my choice of righteousness. not what I choose is righteousness, but what God decides is. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter speaking, and he says, Truly I understand that God shows no personality, but in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. I mean, that's a picture. There is this blessing that that God brings to those who in any nation responds. And so there's this balance between you see God speaking about nations and what's happening there. And then this idea of the individual. That that both are, are in evidence. We see the promise of God in Genesis chapter 12. That's a blessing that we get from the nation of Israel. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country. This is speaking to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And so there's this idea of making a great nation, the nation of Israel. Why was this nation made? Why was a nation of Israel made? One is so he could bless Abraham. He says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then part of it was so that he could bless the world. He says, "I will bless those who bless you, and him who honors you, I or dishonors you, I will curse." And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Be blessed through the nation. Be blessed through the word of God that comes through the nation. Be blessed by the fact that that uh, 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 the the promised Messiah was supposed to come through the nation of Israel. That we receive the blessing through Jesus, and so there's not only the blessing through. The nation, being an example to the world, there was to be the blessing that was to come by means of Jesus Christ. When we look through the scriptures in regard to that, we see Isaiah 42, 6. says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. A light for the nations. That's what God intended for Israel to be. A light for all the nations. That's what we saw in Revelation 21. Old Testament, Isaiah 42. New Testament, Revelation 21. By its light will the nations walk. So it's not Old Testament nations, New Testament individuals. We see Old Testament nations, New Testament nations. Do we see Old Testament um, individuals? Yes. When you think about Abraham and, and Lot, and Lot was in the city of, uh, in, the, uh, in, in Sodom and Gomorrah was going to be judged, and, and Abraham starts bargaining with God, and what does he say? If there's 50 if there's 40, is there 30? God cared about individuals then. And He cares about individuals in the New Testament. So it's not been a shift. God's always cared about nations, He's always cared about individuals. And in fact, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, it says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 42 was was beginning to happen, was coming into the world. He says "He, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and yet his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. So Jesus comes as a light to the nations so that they can respond to him. And as they respond to him, they have eternal life in and through him. And so when we look at this idea... Of nations, we see that Israel was created, chosen nation to have an impact on the nations and did have an impact through at least the promise. Even though they failed, the promise and the scriptures that we have were, were brought by them so that we could respond to Jesus, who was the one who was to come. And so, Jesus, the light of the nations, comes, and then we're blessed when we receive Christ and we become citizens of this new nation. In fact, in Proverbs, uh, Philippians three twenty and twenty one, it says, "But our citizenship is in heaven." Notice it doesn't say, "But our citizenship will be in heaven." It's not a future thing. That's an important aspect. That's an important thing that our our citizenship is that which we have now. It is something that is exists now. It is something that. You don't wait for, it's when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you become a citizen of heaven. You not only become a child of God, you become a citizen of heaven. And it's now. You have it now. You have a place reserved in heaven for you, Peter tells us. And so it's something that we can get excited about. So what is that supposed to look like? How is our citizenship supposed to be? Peter tells us, in 1 Peter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So he puts us together, this idea, he's talking about believers everywhere being a holy nation. And what is this holy nation? It's not made up of just individual uh, people that are just kind of normal. No, we're priests of our God. Every one of us who believe in Christ, we're priests of our God. And what are we supposed to do as priests? We're supposed to offer spiritual sacrifices. And when you look through the New Testament, you begin to see these different things that 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 are... Part of what we bring as priests to our God, we bring spiritual sacrifices. That's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2. That we're a holy nation offering spiritual sacrifices, and these spiritual sacrifices that we bring are doing good and sharing. Giving to Him. Evangelizing our neighbor. Sharing the gospel with them. In Romans chapter 12, one of the things it says, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So as a priest, one of the things that I offer is me. God, I'm yours. Take me. Use me however you will. Take whatever I have. Everything I own, everything I am is yours. I mean, that is a high calling. It's what every believer is called to. It's not just a person who goes into the ministry. We're all called to that. To give our lives for him. To be used by him in whatever way he desires. And not because we're guilted into it. But because we can't wait to do it because of what he did for us. That our motivation is this desire and this love for our God. And you think, but I don't, I don't know if I have enough. I don't know if I am enough to be able to accomplish what he desires for me. And Second Peter 1 says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need. Everything you need to live how he wants you to live. To be those priests to God. To be the holy nation, a chosen race. And so how do we bless these nations? How do we bless the nations around us? You know, it's interesting. A passage that many of us know well, found in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations. And you, you read on and it says, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and be, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's asking us to disciple nations, not just individuals, not just a neighbor, to think bigger, to think larger, to think global, to think in terms of, of whole nations. And I think that even in our Christian organizations, sometimes we don't think that way. I was thinking through some of the Christian organizations and, 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 and one of them I thought was Wycliffe Bible Translators saying, well, certainly they go to the nations, right? Well, they're thinking people groups, aren't they? They're not thinking a whole nation. They're thinking of this people group within a nation that doesn't have the scriptures in their language. When we go to Ecuador, think, hey, we're reaching Ecuador. Well, actually, we're reaching the Quichua in the central portion near Rio Bamba of Ecuador. A people group. I think I read a, a, an article out of Voice of the Martyrs uh, just uh, this week, and and it, and it's and the Voice of the Martyrs deals with and and and, and reveals places in the world where Christians are being attacked uh, for their faith. And, and it was talking about in Africa, this one uh, area of Africa where Christians are being attacked and driven from their homes, especially areas that the, the villages are mostly Christian. And there are a lot of refugees, and a lot of them are, are going to other places and other villages to, to find protection. And find, I mean, the, and, 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 they, and you think people groups, villages not really thinking about the whole nation. And so I was, I w- as I wrestled with those issues, I thought, wow, I don't think what we typically think, nations. And yet in Mark 13, you think, why is God waiting to come? He says, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you'll be, be beaten in synagogues. So he's talking about the end times. He says, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So that's why he waits. That we're proclaiming the gospel. So that we're proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. And that that's a crucial aspect of that. In Luke 24 we see something similar. It says this is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance of forgiveness of sin should be co- proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So at the very beginning starting in Jerusalem proclaimed to all nations. At the end, waiting for that to occur. In Ezekiel chapter 22 you think what is, what is God looking for for us? What has he been looking for? A verse that stands out, and you've probably heard this verse before, it says, "I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before them for the land, uh, before me, for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none." I mean, that, that is a sad verse to me that he's looking for a person that's going to build up the wall that's going to stand in the breach, that's going to stand in the gap. And he says, "I didn't find any." And when I read that verse, I say, Lord, let me be that person. Let me be one at least of those people that stand in the gap, that stand in the breach, that's going to stand up for you. Because in that context, he says, his priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. And I think, gosh, I'm a priest of God. Have I done that? He says, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. Do we hear that in our culture today where people are saying, uh, my God is like this? This is the way my God is? My God would never say that. We hear those statements all the time and you think, how do you know that? We only know from the word of God. And so he's looking for someone who will stand up, who will speak what's true about God, that will speak what God has said, thus saith the Lord, and that we speak not Greg, not you, but him. One day, there is a coming day when the nations and what happens to them is going to change. I love this passage. In Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, verse 2, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, still talking about the new Jerusalem, it says, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God wants and still loves the world. He still loves the nations that we saw in in Psalm 117. He still loves the nations. He still loves America. He still loves every nation on this earth. And he desires that they follow him. He wants to bless them. And he wants to bless us. And he wants to ultimately bring healing for the nations. And so what do we do now? How do we step forward as priests of God? And I think, well, one of the things we need to know is God loves the world. God loves the nations. He loves the individuals in the nations, but he loves the nations. He wants us to pray for the nations and pray for our nation. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. We need to pray for everyone in high position. Whether you agree with them politically or don't agree with them politically, you need to pray for them. That they would seek the face of God. And then we need to be a priest offering spiritual sacrifices. That's what we've been called to do. So we get involved in those things which Scripture tells us to do. And we start, first of all, with saying, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. You've made me yours. I belong to you. Use me As you see fit. And then we get involved in some area of of ministry. Either here at at the church or in your neighborhood. That you begin to step out beyond yourself. Because God doesn't want us to be involved in just ourselves. We make a very small package when we're focused on ourselves. He wants us to focus on the world he's created. On the nations around us. We celebrate with all these fireworks. Let's celebrate with our lives and how we live them. And live as the priests that God created us to be. Because God loves this world. Father, we come to you this morning. And as we get ready to take communion, we look to you. As the God who not only loves us individually, that loves each of us. That Christ died so that we, when we believe, could become priests of yours, become children of yours, to become part of this holy nation that you have chosen. But you want us to get beyond ourselves. You don't want our our spiritual lives to be just wrapped up in us. You want it to be wrapped up in this world that you've created and that you love deeply. That you're one day going to bring healing to. That Jesus died for so that whosoever believes could have everlasting life. Father, help us to think beyond and bigger than ourselves. Help us to think bigger than the individual. Help us to realize that you created the church so that we would work together, so that we would be together, focused on you, strengthened by you. And so, Lord, we come to you now. Use us. We give ourselves to you. Father, right now, we give our hearts to you. We give our minds to you. We give our very self to you. To be used by you. To be the arms that love on this world. To be the feet that walk toward and take the initiative toward this world to live in such a way that israel failed but we have the spirit of god living within us so that people would see our lives and desire you they would give glory to you because they see our works and they give glory to our heavenly father lord help us to be those people that stand in the gap father use us choose us And help us just to live differently. To live for you. To live with passion about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.